All right, everyone, come on in and grab a seat. We're going to get started with our time of teaching. All right, I'm going to go ahead and pray, and then we will dive in. Um, Father, thank you for this morning. Uh, thank you for your word. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you that you speak to us. You reveal yourself to us. One of the greatest truths about the gospel is that God has revealed himself to us in the person of Jesus and the teaching of Jesus and the work of Jesus. And so I pray, God, that we wouldn't take for granted the fact that you speak to finite, fallible people. Um, I think about what, what David says in the Psalms. He says, who is man or who is woman or who, is, who, is, who are human beings that you are mindful of me, that you are mindful of us? And God, I pray we'd be humbled and built up by the fact that you see us you know us, you love us, you care for us, you speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you guys are new, we are in a very short mini-series. It's two weeks, so you're in the second half of the series today. And uh, we're doing a direction series, and direction is kind of like what some churches might call a vision Sunday or a vision series. And, um, and so we, we think it's a helpful practice as a church, as elders, to kind of think through what's God calling us to this year. And before we get into goals or events or specific things, we want to go, God, what are you calling us to at like a heart level? And then the events will be things we pick based on that. So not going, hey, I just want to have an event that's boom, boom, boom. Or I want to do a class on boom, boom, boom. Or I want to serve in this area. But instead going, God, what are you calling us to? And so as a church, we believe that vision is received, not achieved. It's not like a CEO, head coach, the guy just goes, this is the vision. We're doing it, right? we got a consultant. We're ready to go. We want to go, Holy Spirit, we don't know. We know generally what we're supposed to do. We know we're supposed to make disciples. We know we're supposed to help people become like Jesus and help people come to know Jesus. But, but what aspect of Jesus our church is, is supposed to become like, that's not always clear. We need God's specific leading at this time. We know we're supposed to teach, for example, books of the Bible, but what book? right? There's quite a few of them. Uh, what does he want us to focus in on? And so we like to ask questions like, what issues do we need to talk about right now? Um, what pain are people carrying? What types of sin are people wrestling with? What aspect of Jesus' kingdom do we long people to experience? And so for us, two words popped up as themes for the year, okay? Uh, Zelders, and the two words are, the two phrases are Holy Spirit and the household. Holy Spirit and the household, uh, the Holy Spirit kind of worshiping, praying, listening to, and responding to the Spirit of God. We want to be people who listen to and then respond. It's not good enough to just listen. Uh, our lives will never be transformed if we just know what God says, but we never do it, right? Grant talked about that a few weeks ago. And, and, and then the second phrase is the households, okay? Um, in, in the New Testament, the, the word for household, the Greek word oikos, this is your relational sphere or your sphere of influence. And it's not less than a nuclear family, but, uh, but it's certainly not more than it either. Um, and so this idea of household, the burden we had is, is taking responsibility for our closest relationships. To allow the kingdom of God to break into those relationships, whether they're close friendships or marriages or children you are parenting or influencing as an auntie or an uncle. And so this year, um, that's what's popping for us. And so responding to the Holy Spirit and being relationally healthy, uh, kind of stewarding our relationships. And so last week, we looked at the first idea of being people who respond to God, the Holy Spirit. Uh, to do that, we looked at 1 Samuel chapter 1 and the first half of 1 Samuel chapter 2. And that text is an Old Testament narrative of a woman wrestling with infertility. 
Now, wrestling infertility is painful in this culture, a culture that doesn't really value children very much. Never, uh, this was a culture where she was wrestling with infertility, and, and in this culture, women were basically told your value comes down to whether or not you can have a child. So they said, this is the most important thing about a person. You have it or you don't. And if you don't have it, you're not valuable or important. And we talked about how if we're walking in the spirit and offering ourselves to God, that we slowly feel free and full of joy, even if we don't get the thing we think we need, the thing we desperately want. By the way, I actually want to make sure that that was clear this morning. I got some feedback last week that I was grateful for. Sometimes people go, oh man, this part of your sermon could have been better. And I go, thank you so much. Uh, usually, usually. Uh, sometimes it's like, uh, that's a you thing, right? Um, but this one, man, I actually felt like it, it made sense to me. And, and someone just said, hey, um, you gave the impression that if you surrender your desires to God, that you'll always get what you desire. And that isn't true. And I just want to be really clear. When we surrender our desires to God, we don't always get what we desire. I think what the text illustrates isn't that you always get what you desire, but if, the, but if you offer yourself and that thing to God, you get him and you'll become free from the need to look to anything else to give you identity or peace. Does that make sense? So I want to be really clear on that. It, it can set your heart free from having to have it. You don't always get it. Now, Hannah did get it, but I would also argue she also gave it back, which is a tricky thing. Um, but, but either way, um, when we respond to the Holy Spirit, he leads us into joy and worship, but he doesn't always give us what we want, though he always gives us what we need. So again, last week we're talking about one of our themes, uh, responding to the Holy Spirit. Today we're going to talk about the second theme of the year, uh, which is the household, or what I'm calling relational stewardship. Stewarding our relational sphere. And to pick up on that, we're going to continue right where we left off in 1 Samuel chapter 2 last week. 1 Samuel 1, Hannah wrestling deeply with pain and resentment and infertility, brings her pain before the Lord, uh, makes a request to the Lord. She doesn't know if he's going to answer it. He does. Um, but before that, she prays. Uh, she, she praises God. Eventually, she uh, gives uh, her son Eli. She, she offers him up to the Lord at the temple. Uh, I want to be really clear on that, to serve at the temple, not as a sacrifice. Okay, not like to, um, in the ancient Near East, it's very common that people would actually sacrifice their children. Uh, Yahweh never commands that, um, never asks them to do that in the law. And never, um, he part of why he punishes Israel so often is they fall in with faiths that do that. Okay. So 1 Samuel chapter 2. Verse 11, it says, Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, that's, Sam, that's Hannah's husband, but the boy, this is Samuel, ministered before the Lord under Eli the priest. Now, 1 Samuel 2.11 transitions us from the story of Hannah to the story of Eli the priest. And Samuel's kind of the link between them. Uh, Hannah uh, had Samuel, and now Samuel is serving under Eli the priest. Um, but before we learn much about Eli himself, we're going to learn about his sons, and uh, the stuff is not good. All right, so 1 Samuel chapter 2, starting in verse 12. It says, Eli's sons were wicked men. They did not respect the Lord or the priest's share of the sacrifices from the people. When anyone offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come with a three-pronged meat fork while the meat was boiling and plunge it. Into the container, kettle, cauldron, or cooking pot. The priest would claim for himself whatever the meat fork brought up. This is the way they treated all the Israelites who came there to Shiloh. Even before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the one who was sacrificing, Give the priest some meat to roast, because he won't accept boiled meat from you, only raw. If that person said to him, the fat must be burned first, and you can take whatever you want for yourself, the servant would, re would reply, no, I insist that you hand it over right now. If you don't, I'll take it by force. 
It's a hungry, hungry hippo. So the servant's sin was very severe in the presence of the Lord because the men treated the Lord's offering with contempt. Now, this might seem like a complicated passage contextually. It feels like a weird behind-the-scenes kitchen situation. But you need to know that according to the Torah, again, meat was sacrificed. And when the priests were brought sacrifices, the meat was cut up and used for different things, okay? And some of it would go to the person making the sacrifice. Some of it would go to the priest who was presenting the sacrifice, and some of it would be burned completely before the Lord and for the Lord alone. Now, what you need to know is Eli's sons, these priests, are essentially taking portions of all three cuts, taking extra for themselves. And so they're extorting people, they're using God's name to enrich themselves and even keep others in poverty. So these are Eli's sons. They're crooked, shady priests. But there's another little priest in training of the baby who was born last week, was dedicated to serve at the tabernacle. And we see him and his mother again in this passage coming up. And, and you want to contrast this to Eli's sons and their father. Verse 18, Samuel served in the Lord's presence. This little boy was dressed in the linen ephod. Each year his mother made him a little robe and took it to him when she went with her husband to offer the annual sacrifice. Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife. May the Lord give you children by this woman in place of the one she has given to the Lord. Then they would go home. The Lord paid attention to Hannah's need, and she conceived and gave birth to three sons and two daughters. Meanwhile, the boy Samuel grew up in the presence of the Lord. And again, Samuel, for Samuel, uh, Samuel becomes one of the greatest prophets, arguably the greatest prophet in the history of Israel. What we're going to see today is his calling and his formation. Verse 22 says, now Eli was very old. He heard about everything his sons were doing to all Israel and how they were even sleeping with the women who served at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Some shady, shady business. He said to them, why are you doing these things? I have heard about your evil actions from all these people. No, my son, the news I, I hear the Lord's people spreading is not good. If one person sins against another, God can intercede for him. But if a person sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to their father since the Lord intended to kill them. Now, um, super upbeat passage. Uh, these guys are wicked, all right? Um, Eli here is revealing that he's not owning his relational sphere. Um, his kids, uh, while they're priests, they're not following Yahweh. Uh, they, they do not love God. Uh, they are wicked. Uh, they're spiritually abusing the people, stealing from them, sleeping with women, likely sexually abusing them. It's like the worst pastors ever. And they're trained by Eli. Um, one commentator points out that Eli actually accused Hannah. I don't you guys remember this in chapter one. Hannah's at the tabernacle pouring out her heart before the Lord in prayer. She's weeping because she's in so much pain. And he goes, what are you, drunk? And one commentator says he was probably used to young people being drunk at the tabernacle because of his boys. Now, we might be tempted to feel sorry for Eli, but we really shouldn't. Because, again, he has not owned his relational sphere. He's not stewarding his relationships well. I thought Tim Chester summed this up well in his commentary on this passage. He says, Eli hears what his sons are doing and confronts them, but his leadership is ineffectual. Perhaps we are tempted to sympathize with him. 
After all, parents know the frustration of dealing with children who will not listen, right? Amen, right? He doesn't say that. I said that, okay? Not you, though, Clive. You're the best. It's those other kids, you know? But God holds, check this out. Keep reading the quote. God holds him accountable. It says, why do you honor your sons more than me by fattening yourselves on the choice parts of, of every offering made by my people Israel? That's what God tells him later. Eli has honored his sons ahead of God. Indeed, the implication of verse 29 is that Eli knowingly benefited from their crimes. He's like, man, you've been making meat with the food that was stolen. You've enjoyed it yourself. He may be a father who cannot change the heart of his sons. This is true, but he also is a high priest who could end the employment in the tabernacle of his sons, and he is not. Again, it says Eli cared more about honoring his sons than God himself. He put the desires of his sons ahead of the desires of Yahweh, which is the most 2023 parenting move we've ever seen, right? Don't challenge kids to do hard stuff. Be patient. Don't have a morality or ethic informed by the scriptures, right? Um, Let them make their own decisions about spiritual things. Let them come to church when they feel like it. They never will, okay? It's a taught thing you learn to value. Put their activities, maybe uh, academics or their friends' parties or athletics, um, before their spiritual growth. Uh, Maybe even benefit from their academic or athletic prowess. Kind of show them off. Like, check out, you know, check out these grades. Check out this acceptance. Check out this team or whatever. Don't lovingly challenge them to believe something and behave some type of way. Let them figure it out on their own. Which, again, I said a few weeks ago. um, I'll say it again. Letting them figure it out on their own isn't, it's not a decision they make. It's just choosing to let someone else be the primary influence. Someone's going to influence them, right? Kids don't, like, walk down the street and go, boom, I've I've got a worldview. Like, I'm taking all this in, I'm walking around, I got a worldview, right? I've got an ethic, I've got a morality, I've got an approach to emotional health and uh, relationships and a theology. Like, I was just walking and I got it. No, they, they get handed that by someone else. And it may or may not be someone good. Could be a professor, could be a therapist, or, or God forbid, a YouTuber. It's for real, shaping their, influence, shaping their worldview. What I want you to catch is Eli isn't stewarding his relational sphere, the roles that God has given him in certain relationships, and and neither are his sons, by the way. Their role as priests, as spiritual leaders. Hannah, on the other hand, is encouraging Samuel as much as she can to follow Yahweh and to serve him. She's already offered him to Yahweh. And now, man, she's doing the best she can. Like, it, it probably was painful. Like, it's a cute story. Like, she's bringing him a shirt she makes every year. But it's also a reminder of what she has given Yahweh, what she has um, put before him. Now, I don't have time to get into the next portion of 1 Samuel 2, um, primarily because he's going to repeat some of this stuff in the next chapter. Um, But Yahweh curses Eli and his family for the evil they have done. It's like judgment day is coming. So now we're going to move to chapter 3, verse 1. It says, The boy Samuel served the Lord in Eli's presence. In those days, the word of the Lord was rare, and prophetic visions were not widespread. One day, Eli, whose eyesight was failing, was lying in his usual place. Before the lamp of God had gone out, Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord, where the ark of God was located. 
Um, now, honestly, from here, this turns into most nights at my house. Like I will just say, some of you parents might recognize the next uh, couple verses. Um, after you put your kids down for bed, a lot of getting up and checking on something, right? Uh, I think I told you guys this before. Jackie started asking our kids, is this a now thing or a later thing? Halfway down the stairs. Hold on. Before you come all the way down, is this a now thing or a later thing? And a lot of times they are pretty honest. They're like, you know what? It's a later thing. Uh, <laughs> they'll go back up. Um, you know, can I have some water? Um, one of my favorites is something's happening to my leg. <laughs> you go, whoa, is your leg in pain? It's not pain. It's like weird. It's like weird. Is it tingling? It's not tingling. When did you notice this? Uh, after I got in bed. Mom, how could Jesus be God and man at the same time? We can talk about this tomorrow. When did you start thinking about this question, though? After I got in bed. Go back and lay down, please. We get, we get a lot of this here. 1 Samuel 3, verses 4 through 5, it says, Then the Lord called Samuel, and he answered, Here I am. He ran to Eli and said, Here I am, you called me. I didn't call, Eli replied. Go back and lie down. Memory, it's like a memory verse I want to give someone in my life. So he went and lay down, right? Keep reading. Verse 6, once again, the Lord called Samuel. Samuel got up. And he went to Eli, and he said, here I am. You called me. I didn't call my son. He replied, go back and lie down. Verse 7, this is an important verse. It said, now Samuel did not yet know the Lord because the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. Now, important distinction. Earlier in our text, it says the sons of Eli did not know the Lord. And in this verse, we're told that Samuel did not yet know the Lord. And a big distinction is their situation is very different. The sons of Eli didn't know the Lord because of moral issues in their life. There's, there's sin issues. They don't want to hear from God because they want to do their own thing. Okay? Samuel's early in discovering a prophetic gifting, and he doesn't know how to hear God's voice clearly yet or in a helpful way. I want to encourage those of us who are newer to the faith or who are learning how to pray or listen to God's voice. There's, excuse me, there's no shame. You might need a guide. I think a couple of you have prophetic giftings in this room and they're early on and it's okay to, to learn and to be in process. We did, uh, we have pre-service prayer at our church and we did a thing called Lectio Divina before uh, church day where you just, you read through a passage three times. You ask God to speak to you and all of us are learning to do it. Uh, we're getting used to it. And there's some people who are, uh, one of them was a missionary. I'm not going to name names. One of them was a pastor. I'm not going to name names. And we're learning to do this. And so learning to hear God's voice takes time. And it was no different for Samuel. Verse eight, once again, for the third time, the Lord called Samuel he got up, usually the third time, by the way, is when parents go actually go back into the room to, like, reestablish order. Here's what's happening. Here's what's not happening, okay? So verse 8 says, once again, for the third time, the Lord called Samuel. He got up, went to Eli, and said, here I am. You called me. Then Eli understood that the Lord was calling the boy. He told Samuel, go and lie down. If he calls you, say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. And you're looking at Samuel being like 11 to 12 years old, probably. Somewhere, probably even pre like preteen, older kid. And he gets a doozy of a prophetic word. So again, Samuel goes, this isn't simply hearing sounds in the night. Something significant's happening. And then he encounters God's voice for a fourth time. But it's more than a voice. God actually appears to Samuel. Verse 11, the Lord said to Samuel, I am about to do something in Israel that will cause everyone who hears about it to shudder. On that day, I will carry out against Eli everything I said about his family from beginning to end. 
I told him that I'm going to judge his family forever because of the iniquity he knows about. His sons are cursing God, and he has not stopped them. Therefore, I have sworn to Eli's family, the iniquity of Eli's family will never be wiped out by either sacrifice or offering. So a couple things here. Um, this is quite the first prophetic word to get as a kid. <laughs> God's going to judge the family of your priestly mentor. Two, uh, I mean, it, it is a real prophecy of judgment. Like there's no sugarcoating it. There's no way to like make it kind of cool, uh, kind of explain it away. Some people like to do it with the Bible. It's like, oh, it's context. You know, it's, it's going to wipe you out metaphorically. Uh, by the way, he's also not saying there's no, it might sound like God has no grace or no mercy because he's saying there's no sacrifice for them. Um, he isn't saying that there's no sacrifice available for Eli and his family because he isn't gracious, but because he is rejecting the very way of atonement available in the Old Testament. Again, they don't actually have any respect or faith in the sacrificial system, God's means of atonement in the Old Testament. So think about that. If you reject that, what's left? Um, one commentator put it this way. He said, Eli has shown contempt toward the sacrificial offerings, and so have his sons. But there is no other means of atonement. To reject God's sacrifices, to reject any hope of your guilt being atoned for. The sacrifices of the Old Testament point to the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. So in the same way, to treat the cross with contempt is to reject any hope of your guilt being atoned for. As the writer of the New Testament letter to the Hebrews writes, For if we, for if we deliberately go on sinning, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation, expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire about to consume the adversaries. Anyone who disregarded the law of Moses died without mercy based on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think one will deserve who has trampled on the Son of God, who has regarded as profane the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified? and who has insulted the spirit of grace. Commentator adds, It is not that there are sins which are beyond the scope of the cross. There are no sins which are too big for the grace of God and the blood of Christ to cover, which is a good thing to hear. The point is this. If you despise the cross of Christ, then you reject the only means to salvation. If you kick Christ's sacrifice, you have nowhere left to turn to for forgiveness, close quote. So again, if you go, I don't want the cross, you're on your own then. Does that make sense? And when they rejected the sacrificial system, they were on their own. And so there is judgment coming for the house of Eli. And a lot of it's Eli's faults. Verse 15, Samuel lay down until the morning. Then he opened the doors of the Lord's house. He was afraid to tell Eli the vision. But Eli called him and said, Samuel, my son, here I am, answered Samuel. Verse 17, what was the message he gave you, Eli asked? Don't hide it from me. May God punish you and do so severely if you hide anything from me that he told you. Again, I've mentored people with prophetic gifts before, and sometimes when they first start to hear God's voice, they can have intense experiences. But man, I've never heard of anyone getting anything like this as a first prophetic word. This is a unique calling. Usually it's like, I'm, real, I'm hearing God say that he loves me for the first time. It's like, that's awesome. It's like, by the way, your family's going to die. God's going to do it. So he's obviously really nervous to share it with Eli, but Eli wants to know. So he kind of swallows, takes a deep breath. He goes, all right, I got some tough news. Verse 18 uh, says this. 
So Samuel told him everything and did not hide anything from him. Eli responded, he is the Lord. Let him do what he thinks is good. And, uh, and that's the beginning of, um, of the ministry of one of the greatest prof- uh, prophets in the scriptures and in the history of the world. As you keep reading First Second Samuel, um, God uses Samuel to do some very important things. Uh, he anoints kings. He makes significant prophecies. Um, and, uh, and as you'll see, verse 19 says, Samuel grew and the Lord was with him. And he fulfilled everything Samuel prophesied. All Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was confirmed as a prophet of the Lord. The Lord continued to appear in Shiloh because there he revealed himself to Samuel by his word. And so again, Samuel's calling as a prophetic leader is established. In this text, we see uh, how different faith formation can go for kids depending on how their parents or caregivers show up for them what they offer to them, what they do with them. And so what does this mean for us? I just have two questions. I don't want to spend too much time on this, but I want to put these questions in front of us. Uh, the first question is, are, we, are you stewarding your relational sphere? Are you stewarding your relational sphere? And number two, are you walking in the roles the Holy Spirit has called you into? Again, are you stewarding your relational sphere, and are you walking in the roles the Holy Spirit has called you into? And this first question, are, and this is the household, okay? In the New Testament, th- there's this concept of an oikos. And again, it's often trans, that's a Greek word. It's often translated as household in English. Now, household in the West, uh, we often think of a mom, a dad, and kids, maybe grandparents living with you, uh, but it's kind of the people that can fit under the roof, usually mom, dad, kids. But in the ancient world, an oikos wasn't less than that. It included a mom, a dad, and kids. Um, but it was a relational sphere of influence. Often it included grandparents and aunts and uncles and siblings that often lived with you. It included your employees. It included, it included um, household property. And so here's a, here's a key idea with this is if you have an oikos, if you have a space or a family or a, a network of relationships that you belong to, there are roles that only you can play. Uh, a pastor I used to be mentored by, a man named Darren Carrington, he, he used to always say this. He used to say, if I died, the church would hire another pastor to fill my role. My kids would never have a dad again. He would talk about, you know, the, the, the tendency of pastors to overwork and to not be there. And he's like, man, they'll move on. Your kids are not moving on in the same way. And so many of us, we give all of our time to a business that will replace us when we aren't there anymore. Or be sold when we die, or we move on, or we neglect our marriages in favors. We neglect our marriages in favor of kind of trivial things, in comparison, things like fantasy football, or working out, or social media, or even friendships, even church stuff at times. Again, none of these things are wrong in and of themselves, but none of them are as primary. So, if you are married, as a spouse, none of them are as primary as children. If you're a parent. Again, many of us are more intentional planning a self-care day or a nice meal than we are connecting with, drawing out, listening to, and praying for members of our family. Makes sense. We'll do, a t- we'll do hours of research about a car we're going to buy or maybe a sne- sneakers you're going to buy or a shirt you're going to buy. And you're like, how am I going to draw out my wife tonight? I'll, you know, I'll, I'll get to that later. 
again, uh, all of the data and research, most of it, says that loving attachment in early childhood to a parent or a caregiver is vital for their development, mental health, and success later in life. But our culture keeps diminishing motherhood and fatherhood. So it's like, kids need this. I don't want to do it, though. I want to do important things. I want to go sit in meetings. Meetings aren't bad, but man, it's, it's just crazy when we integrate this so much. Role or job. Uh, something that just keeps, it's been coming to mind a lot the last few weeks. Um, it seems as though many people in our society didn't receive the attachment, attention, and adoration they, so, they should have received as children. And now ne- they neglect their own children in pursuit of attention and adoration as adults. That could be through work, that could be through whatever, friend groups, whatever. Spend more time planning trips with friends than we do the formation of our kids. Again, it's not a second-class role. And I'm even nervous to talk about parenting as such a vital thing uh, because I know the church has at times made an idol of it. They've been like, you know, it's all about the focus on the family. It's the family, it's the family. You know, evangelical church especially, it's the family, the family, the family. And, uh, but but I got to say, guys, I don't think that's where we are in North Park and by and large, as a church. Uh, I, and so I just want to say, and by, I'm also nervous to talk about because I don't want people who don't have kids who are struggling with infertility or those of you who are single or whatever to feel like second-class citizens. You're not. Don't hear me saying that, but hear me say parenting is important to those who are parents. Okay? If you don't have a spouse, you are not less than. Jesus did not have a spouse. He wasn't an ounce less than the image of God. He had everything he needed to live a beautiful, abundant life, and you do too. But if you are married, if you decide to do that, that should get a ton of attention. And I think we've undertaught this, I think, for a couple of reasons. One is we didn't want to make people who didn't have spouses or kids feel uncomfortable. Um, two, I didn't want to be a cliche. You know, as a church plant, it's like, oh, it's just about basically a spot for families to hang out and whatever. Um, no, I, I, again, I want to say the way co- the, the family of God is more than marriages and parenting, but it's not less than that. Does that make sense? Also, by the way, and, and I'll get into this right now, um, some of you don't have a spouse or biological children. You can still play a significant role in your oikos. As a matter of fact, in the ancient, in the early church, family and oikos was viewed very differently than we view it today, the ancient Mediterranean worlds. In his outstanding book, When Church Was a Family, it's a book that really shapes our ecclesiology, our view of the church as pastors. Uh, New Testament scholar Joseph Hellerman writes this. He says, the blood bond between siblings, talking about the ancient worlds, uh, the the New Testament worlds, um, the blood bond between siblings, not between husband and wife, is the most intimate, nurturing, and ultimately satisfying relationships for persons in collectivist cultures. The following is a basic summary of ancient relational priorities. The closest family bond in ancient Mediterranean society was not the bond of marriage, it was the bond between siblings. This is still true, by the way, in a lot of the world. In Africa and Asia and certain parts of the world, um, there often is parents would go, I'd rather have my kids be good siblings to each other than, you know, for, for a lot of the world, marriage is an economic relationship. It's a financial arrangement. It's not your deepest love. So he says, uh, that, that was true then. Uh, correspondingly, the most treacherous act of human disloyalty in an ancient family was not disloyalty to one's spouse. It was the betrayal of one's brother, okay? Now, uh, what Joseph Hellerman's not getting at is we're not getting at, like, your marriage shouldn't be important. I'm saying today, marriage should be important. Uh, parenting should be important. But it's, it's to say that in the church, we really can care for one another deeply as brothers and sisters. 
Okay. Uh, again, um, it's funny because um, in the West, especially in white people in the West, especially tend to have a very individualistic view of life and relationships. Uh, the majority of the world, they're collectivist. They're, they're collectivist. And so that means that the collective matters more than the individual. And so that's why people will often go, um, uh, for, for people, uh, often for, 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 for brown folks, for example, there is an understanding that you want to live by your family. Uh, you know, there's a hope that you would live by your family. That's a huge shaping factor on where you'll live, not where can I get paid the most money and live out my, you know, career. Um, does that make sense? Um, um, you don't think about, again, I don't want to critique this too hard, but, uh, but again, it, just cultural differences. It would be unthinkable for a lot of people to send their parents to a home and not have them with them. And, and there's complexity to that. You don't need to be guilt-shamed if you're doing that. I'm just saying there's a difference culturally. Does that make sense? And so um, the New Testament descri describes a collectivist group. It's not a group of just a bunch of individuals who do whatever they want, whenever they want, and don't care about impacting each other. It's a group that does care for one another and serve one another and take some level of responsibility for one another. Does that make sense? And so um, there's, you have a huge role to play, even if you are not married or have kids in the life of this church. There are kids in this church that would love your investment and need your investment. Again, in the history of the world, it wasn't just a mom and a dad in a house going, we'll do it all, right? There was a, a, a uh, you know, I know Hillary Clinton gets like the, <laughs> Hillary Clinton gets like the credit for it takes a village to raise a kid. It's an African proverb. It's like, dude, how many things do white people need? It's like, it, it's, it was an African proverb, all right? Um, and, uh, but you know what? There's truth to it. And the Bible would say there's truth to it, Okay. Um, we do need other people to invest in kids, okay? And not just babysit. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm saying you're there with the parents getting to invest in them together. You show up at stuff. Some of you guys have been to um, Olivia's ballet shows, and it's meant the world to her to see quite a few aunties and uncles applauding for her when she walks out. Uh, it's scary. It was so much applause last time she cried. She was overwhelmed um, with emotion. Um, and we do need brothers and sisters, okay? So again, um, it, what I'm talking more about is prioritizing some specific people that you really want to give yourself to. Again, if you're married or have kids, it's just some of those blocks are already ticked off by God for you. Like, hey, that you definitely, these are some of your people. Um, if you don't have a, a spouse or a child, I do want to say um, you still are get to be called into the same stuff. You just get to, in some ways, you get to pick who those people are. So again, in the ancient world, including the ancient church, the most important relationships weren't between spouses, but between siblings. Uh, again, I'm not trying to get us to invest in our marriages less. I'm just saying that if you aren't married, you can still prioritize siblings in Christ over and above other relationships. Um, I don't think it's a stretch to say that in the New Testament, the assumption is that your closest friendships will be o with other Christians. Okay, it's not saying you can't be friends with people, but again, who, who's influencing you the most? Who are you most responsible to and for? There are people you still can influence significantly, those whom God calls you to in his family. That being said, I want to say that healthy relationships in a church, one more time, are more than marriage and parenting relationships, but they aren't less than healthy marriages and parenting relationships. Okay. Number two, are you walking in the roles the Holy Spirit's called you into? Um, so this year, again, we want to highlight a couple different things. Um, we want to do a course on emotional healthy relationships. That's something we want to do this summer. We also want to do a marriage course uh, this summer. So those are some things that we want to highlight uh, in a pretty big way. Um, we're looking to do a parenting seminar or two this year. 
uh, as well as probably a parenting course later on in the year. And then in the fall, we're going to be preaching on, uh, so we're starting a spirit on the Holy Spirit here in a couple weeks. We'll be doing that for a while at the beginning of the year. Um, But in the fall, our big series is going to be around healthy relationships. So that's friendships, that's marriage, that's parenting, um, that's relationships with your, your family of origin. Like how do we have healthy relationships um, that honor God and love people well? Does that make sense? Um, and so a- as we close, I wanted to read uh, two passages of scripture to you. All right. And I want to call the band up. Uh, Ruth and Carla, if you guys could come on up. Okay, now get the lights. I want to encourage you guys real quick just to close your eyes. Again, if it's helpful to do some active breathing, kind of in through the nose, out through the mouth, whatever helps you get present to the fact that, again, that you are here as an embodied soul in the presence of God and his people. I want to read this passage of scripture over you. And remember, this is, this is the word of God. Psalm 68, verses 5 through 6, it says, Father to the fatherless, defender of widows, this is God whose dwelling is holy. God places the lonely in families. He sets the prisoners free and gives them joy. And as you keep your eyes closed, I just want to say to you today, if you're here today and, and, and you long for marriage and you're single, God sees you. I want to say today, if you're single and you want kids, and you can't have them, or you are married, and you're struggling with infertility, God sees you. And just because those things have not been given to you yet, I just want to say to you, family is not being withheld from you. There are significant relationships. There's an oikos for you to belong, and be loved, and be cared for, and be celebrated. So, Father, I ask right now that you would give men and women eyes to see family that's around them. You give us eyes and ears to, to receive those looking for family, and you give us boldness to ask for family. And then over all of us, Lord, I want to read uh, John 10. I'm going to read this over you. These are the words of Jesus. And they relate to this idea of hearing the voice of God. This is in the New Testament. It says, Jesus declared for all to hear, my sheep listen to my voice. I call each one by name. I lead them out and they follow me because they know my voice. But they will never follow a stranger whose voice they do not know and trust. I open and close gates for my precious sheep. They come in and find safe pasture, and they go out with me in the path of righteousness. The false shepherd is a thief who comes to steal, kill, and destroy the sheep, but I have come to give them life, my life, real life from God that is abundant and eternal. If the hired hand sees a wolf, he runs away, and so the wolf attacks the sheep. However, I am the good shepherd. And I lay down my life for my sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me just as the father knows me and I know the father. I lay down my life for my sheep.
I want to say to all of us today that we have one shepherd. And he's called us to one another as his sheep. And he lays down his life for us. Like to make us family, Jesus died on the cross to reconcile us to a father, and not just a father, but brothers and sisters. Brothers and sisters made up of men and women who should have nothing to do with one another on paper. You think through story and background and race and socioeconomic status and age and interests and fashion choices and all the different ways, political party, all that stuff is secondary to the fact that we're in Jesus, the king of the universe who laid down his life for his sheep. And so Jesus, as we prepare to take communion, I pray that we could do it as a family. I pray that you'd keep helping us be a healthy family, a healthy church family made up of smaller subsets of family. But it would be one big healthy relational sphere. We don't our parts of the sphere. whether that's in our home or in our workplace or in the church, God, that wherever we go, we would infect systems, relational systems with our health. Where there is dysfunction and sin and pain and brokenness and a lack of boundaries and gossip and all that stuff, Lord, would we bring the opposites? Where there is uh, um, uninterest or inattention, would we bring interest and empathy for those who feel ignored and abandoned? God, would we be a healthy family? Would you enrich marriages in this church? Would you, would you enrich friendships in this church? Would you enrich parent and child relationships and, and other adults and other children in our church relationally? They might have multiple healthy people to look up to, spiritually healthy, emotionally healthy. And the reality is, is that good marriages and good friendships and good parenting, that all starts with just being a healthy follower of Jesus. It starts with, with, with our relationship with ourself before the Lord. And so God, would you do in us what needs to happen so that we might influence our relational spheres for the kingdom of Jesus and his power and strength. So thank you for laying down your life for us, Jesus. Thank you for bringing us to a safe place. Call us to yourself again in a fresh way. Think about Matthew 11. He says, come to me, all you who are weary, and I'll give you rest for your soul. And that come to me is an ongoing imperative in Greek. Keep coming to me. You're going to get weary again. You're going to get tired again. This isn't just salvation at a youth camp. Keep coming to me. I'll give you rest. I'll give you what you need. Would you give us what we need this morning as we come to communion, as people who have been wounded, as people who sin, as people who should be far away from you, but Jesus, you have brought us near because you're the good shepherd who goes out looking for us, and you found us. Would you help us find our hearts again this morning? In Jesus' name, amen.